Tonight, our message is out of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, wheel in a wheel. Ezekiel lived towards the very end of ancient Judah's history before Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple uh, is destroyed and Judah is taken captive to Babylon. He actually lives through that time. Uh, he was taken captive in the beginning of that time and so he prophesizes from the the area of, Jew, of, of, Be, of Be, uh, Babylon, babbling it away, <laughs> in Babylon as, with the captives, and um, during the last king, Zedekiah of, of Judah, Israel had already been taken captive and dispersed by the Assyrians many years before. So that kind of gives us a little timeline. He's a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem and continued to prophesy. Uh, Ezekiel probably heard of Jeremiah before he was taken captive, maybe heard of some of his sayings and writings, met him, met him, and he lives at the same time as Obadiah and Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the captives by the river Chabar, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now this time, this date, the 30th year, fourth month, fifth day, uh, there's not a unified opinion on what exactly he's referencing that to. It might have been how old he was. He doesn't reference this time again throughout his book, and many chapters in his book, and he does quote times and give reference to time uh, in other places, but never this, this date, this time, whatever it was, the 30 years ago, five months and, and four months and five days prior to this. So that might have been his age that he began to receive a vision. And as a, uh, a Levite, as we'll see in a moment, he, in verse 2, he, he's a Kohen, um, that he would have, uh, that would have been the year, age, age of 30, would have been an important year for him as well. That God then speaking to him, God, he sees visions of God starting at that time. Now, it could have been some other different things other 30 years back, but, uh, but that's a very good possibility. Now, verse 2 is very interesting. This is in the first person. I was among the captives, right? I saw visions. Now, verse 2 says, on the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the Kohen, the son of Buzai, uh, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and he heard, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So there it's someone talking about him. So someone jumps in, in verse 2 and verse 3, and adds these verses, maybe even afterwards, maybe after he died, or, or, or maybe a scribe, or someone obviously adds it, because when we get to verse 4, he's again in the first person, and then throughout the rest of the chapter. So it might be because of that dating. Maybe they wanted to give a, a more accurate dating that goes along with the rest of the book and, and, and how people were relating to time, to the time of the first captivity, the time of, of Babylon coming through and taking the first grouping of captives to Babylon. There were three different uh, uh, t times where they came, and on the third time, destroying Jerusalem and taking the vast majority of who was left. But Ezekiel was one of the first to go in that, in that first um, attack on Jerusalem, and so the dating begins there. And so he's five years from that time, five years from when Babylon starts to attack Jerusalem, and so that's where this dating is given. Okay, and then yeah, we see in verse 4, I looked and behold, and a whirlwind coming out of the north. So back again to the first person. So that's kind of just a little interesting thing. 
Now, for an overview of the whole book of Ezekiel, I'm going to give you a whole book overview in just something like 13 minutes or something like that. Actually, I'm not going to, uh, but I found a video that does that, which I think we'll find pretty interesting. This is a little different sermon than, uh, than we normally do, that we ever do, uh, but we're going to watch this little video, and uh, I think it'll be very helpful for us to get as we get into uh, the study of the book of Ezekiel and now start a series on the, the, the writings of Ezekiel. be helpful to see how it's formatted and laid out. And it's done with an animation, so we'll go right to that. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot, and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshiping idols, and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence. And so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another, and Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or he was to shave off all of his hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay on his side for over a year, eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart. 
And this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellions, when he predicted that exile would one day happen, and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. And so, a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard, in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz, and the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. And so in chapter 11, we come to see why and how God's glory appeared to Ezekiel there in Babylon. Israel's idolatry and their covenant violations, it's become so blatant and offensive that God has left his temple. They've driven him away, and he consigns it to destruction. But God hasn't abandoned his people. Rather, he goes into exile with them. And so at the end of this vision in chapter 11, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land, and he'll transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. This is a small glimmer of hope, and it's quickly submerged under the reality of the imminent destruction. But chapter 11, it's a key transition, and it helps us understand how the rest of the book has been designed. So the next three sections are all announcements of God's judgment, first on Israel, then on the nations around Israel, and then on Jerusalem itself. But then after that, the hopeful conclusion of chapter 11 gets developed in the final three sections of the book. First, hope for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all creation. Chapters 12 through 24 focus on God's judgment coming to Israel. And this is a diverse collection of poems and essays. And here Ezekiel shows his fondness for parable and allegory. So he depicts Israel as a burnt, useless stick, or as a rebellious wife, or as a dangerous, raging lion that gets captured, or as two promiscuous sisters. These are all depictions of Israel's senseless rebellion and idolatry that results in their ruin. In this section, Ezekiel also acts like a lawyer. He begins arguing the case that, first of all, Jerusalem's destruction is truly deserved after centuries of covenant violation. And that even if the most righteous people in the world, like Noah or Daniel or Job, were alive and praying for God to spare Israel, God would not accept their prayers. It's far too late. And so God's goodness actually demands that he bring justice on this generation of Israel. The exile has become inevitable. They've reached the point of no return. Following this, Ezekiel focuses first on the nations immediately around Israel, and then on the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and then Tyre. Israel has allied with these nations and adopted their gods and their idols. And so God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride, and he announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. They will face God's justice along with everybody else. Following these really intense sections is a short story in chapter 33. Ezekiel's met by a refugee who's just arrived from Jerusalem, and he gives them the report that Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem, that the city has fallen, and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim warnings have become a reality. But remember, the end of chapter 11, that's not the end of the story. 
But remember, at the end of chapter 11, God promised that there was still a future beyond exile for Israel. And so the rest of the book is designed to explore Ezekiel's vision of hope, first for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all of creation. The hope for Israel begins with God promising to raise up a new David, a future messianic king who's going to be the kind of leader that Israel needed but never got. And this new Israel who's going to come under the messianic king's rule is going to be a transformed people. God's going to deal with the heart of their problem of rebellion by giving them new hearts. It's just like Moses promised at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God says he's going to remove their hard hearts and send his spirit into his people to give them new soft hearts that can love and obey their God. And this idea gets developed in the next strange vision. Ezekiel sees a huge valley filled up with dry human bones and skeletons. And God tells him that it's an image, a metaphor, for Israel's spiritual state. So their rebellion against God, it resulted in exile and the literal death of many people. But it was also a metaphorical death of their covenant relationship. And God tells Ezekiel that his spirit is coming to bring his people back to life. And so this wind comes and it causes all of the bones to stand up and it fills them with breath and life. And then skin grows over the bones and then all of a sudden Ezekiel sees all of these new humans standing in front of him. Now this vision, it's recalling the story about the creation of humans in Genesis chapter 2. Where God made humans out of dirt and divine breath. And so Israel and all humanity have rebelled, resulting in death. And so the only hope is that God would perform a new act of creation and remake humans in such a way that they can truly live in a relationship of love with God and with each other. And so after God is going to deal with the evil that's in the hearts of his own people, some questions still remain unresolved. Like, what about the evil that's still rampant out there among the nations? And what about the future of God's dwelling place in the temple? And this is what the final two sections of the book are about. So first come chapters 38 and 39, and they promise God's final defeat of evil among the nations, which gets personified by a ruler who's named Gog from the land of Magog. Now this name is derived from a genealogy of ancient kingdoms and lands from Genesis chapter 10, and it referred to powerful nations from the distant past. And so Ezekiel picks up this ancient biblical name as an image of any and all violent kingdoms. And so we find that Gog gets allied with seven nations that come from all four directions of the compass. It's clearly an image that represents all of the nations. And this also helps us understand why Ezekiel describes Gog with images that he used earlier in the book to describe the king of Tyre and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. For Ezekiel, Gog is an amalgam of all of the worst, most violent people in the Bible. Gog is the archetype of human rebellion against God. The basic story in these chapters is that Gog resists God's plan to restore his people. And so just like Pharaoh in the Exodus story, Gog comes to destroy the people. But God unleashes his justice on Gog, and it's in a flurry of scenes that don't actually make very good literal sense if you read them in sequence. Because first, Gog and his armies are consumed by an earthquake, but then they're consumed by fire two different times. And then after that, God comes and strikes Gog and his army down in the fields where they lay unburied for months. It's clear that these scenes are full of symbol and imagery. Ezekiel has pulled out his entire poetic tool set here to describe how God is determined to finally defeat human evil that has ruined his world. And it's so that he can pave the way for a new creation. 
And so once evil is finally dealt with among the nations, the last section of the book describes how God's presence is going to one day return to his people and his temple to bring cosmic restoration. So Ezekiel first gets this long, elaborate vision of a new temple and a new city. He's given this heavenly tour guide who shows him around the new temple complex, and it's much larger and more majestic than even Solomon's temple. There's a new altar, new priests, a whole new system of worship. And then after this elaborate tour, God's glorious throne chariot that he saw back in his first vision comes back and it enters the new temple. Now the meaning of these temple visions has been the source of debate for a long, long time. So some Christian and Jewish readers believe that this vision will be fulfilled literally one day, and that these chapters offer the actual blueprints of the new temple that will be built when the Messiah returns and brings God's kingdom. But many other Jewish and Christian readers think that this vision, like all of Ezekiel's other visions, is full of symbols. And they depict the reality of God's presence returning to his people in the messianic kingdom, but not necessarily in the form of an actual building. Whichever view you take, it's important that Ezekiel never calls the city Jerusalem. And chapters 47 and 48 show why. Ezekiel sees this tiny stream pouring out of the temple threshold and steps. And then it quickly becomes this raging river, and then it flows out of the temple and the city into the desert, into one of the most desolate places on planet Earth, the Dead Sea Valley. And then that river, it leaves behind it a trail of trees and life, and then the Dead Sea gets transformed into a living sea that's teeming with plants and animals. All of this imagery comes from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we see just how cosmic Ezekiel's vision really is. God's plan has always been to restore all humanity and all creation back to his life-giving presence. And so the book ends with the name of this garden city, the Lord is there. And so Ezekiel's visions come to a close, full of hope for a new future, new humans living in a new world that's animated by God's life-giving spirit. It's a world permeated with God's love and justice. And that's what the book of Ezekiel is all about. Pretty good, huh? All right. Yeah, I couldn't have done that. <laughs> In that short of time, and on one page, it's got the whole thing laid out, right? Pretty amazing. Oh, what are we doing there? Okay, oh yeah. Okay, so now we're going to go to uh, another little video that's going to read us the entire chapter one. Uh, so that way I don't have to read the whole entire chapter one to us. And it also will be animated uh, in a different type of animation. And then we will conclude with some wrap-up of some of the meaning of chapter one for us today in our practical lives. Okay? Now it came about in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, while I was in the midst of the exiled people by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened, and I began to see visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, that is, in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of Jehovah occurred specifically to Ezekiel, the son of Uzai, the priest in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kibar. And upon him in that place the hand of Jehovah came to be. And I began to see, and look, there was a tempestuous wind coming from the north, a great cloud mass and quivering fire, and it had a brightness all around, and out of the midst of it there was something like the look of electrum out of the midst of the fire, and out of the midst of it there was the likeness of four living creatures 
and this was how they looked. They had the likeness of earthling man, and each one had four faces, and each one of them four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of the foot of a calf, and they were gleaming as with the glow of burnished copper. And there were the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and the four of them had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joining one to the other. They would not turn when they went. They would go each one straight forward. And as for the likeness of their faces, the four of them had a man's face with a lion's face to the right, and the four of them had a bull's face on the left. The four of them also had an eagle's face. That is the way their faces were. And their wings were spreading out upward. Each one had two joining to each other and two were covering their bodies, and they would go, each one, straight forward. To wherever the spirit would incline to go, they would go. They would not turn as they went. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. Something like the appearance of torches was moving back and forth between the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire there was lightning going forth. And on the part of the living creatures there was a going forth and a returning, as with the appearance of the lightning. As I kept seeing the living creatures, why look, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, by the four faces of each. As for the appearance of the wheels and their structure, it was like the glow of chrysolite. The four of them had one likeness, and their appearance and their structure were just as when a wheel proved to be in the midst of a wheel. When they went, they would go on their four respective sides. They would not turn another way when they went. And as for their rims, they had such height that they caused fearfulness. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. And when the living creatures went, the wheels would go beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels would be lifted up. Wherever the spirit inclined to go, they would go, the spirit inclining to go there, and the wheels themselves would be lifted up close alongside them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When they went, these would go, and when they stood still, these would stand still, and when they were lifted up from the earth, the wheels would be lifted up close alongside them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. And over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, like the sparkle of awesome ice stretched out over their heads up above. And under the expanse their wings were straight, one to the other. Each one had two wings covering on this side, and each one had two covering on that side, their bodies. And I got to hear the sound of their wings, a sound like that of vast waters like the sound of the Almighty One. When they went, the sound of a tumult, like the sound of an encampment. When they stood still, they would let their wings down. And there came to be a voice about the expanse that was over their head. When they stood still, they would let their wings down. And above the expanse that was over their head, there was something in appearance like sapphire stone, the likeness of a throne, and upon the likeness of the throne there was a likeness of someone in appearance 
like an earthling man upon it, up above. And I got to see something like the glow of electrum, like the appearance of fire all around inside thereof. From the appearance of his hips and upward, and from the appearance of his hips and downward, I saw something like the appearance of fire, and he had a brightness all around. There was something like the appearance of the bow that occurs in a cloud mass on the day of a pouring rain. That is how the appearance was of the brightness round about. It was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Jehovah. Okay, so now I just want to focus in on just a few of those verses that we just read the entire chapter of. <clears throat> Going to verse 16. The appearance of the wheels and the working was like a color of beryl and a wheel in the middle of the wheel. As I want to focus on the wheels tonight. We'll look at the angels another time. They're mentioned in another chapter in Ezekiel, and so we'll look at them another night. We'll point out one thing. You notice they had four faces, or four faces on their head. One was a face like a man, one was a face like a bull, one was a face like an eagle, and one was like a face like of a lion. You will notice that God likes those animals, and that he does not mention dogs or cats. I knew <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He's a lion, like lions and eagles and bulls. That's it. So if you want a pet, that's what you should get. Anyway, back to the wheels, right? So a wheel within a wheel. And there's a famous song, and we'll sing it later on in the service, uh, a wheel in the wheel. And uh, it doesn't have anything really to do with the first chapter of Ezekiel, but it's a great song anyway. Uh, so Ezekiel sees this wheel, and a wheel within a wheel, and he sees four of them, and how they work together in a pretty amazing way. They did not turn aside when they went. Somehow they go without having to turn. And their movements, they're going in this amazing, kind of like a gyro maybe or something that uh, is beyond our understanding at this point. But God's throne sits above this and is carried by them. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went with them. And when the living creatures were lifted up, the wheels lifted up. And wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went because the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And so these wheels, they spin, and they spin within a wheel within a wheel, everything in harmony together, not clashing, not hitting, all moving together in whatever direction the Spirit moves them. And that's how God wants us to be in unity with him, and in unity with one another, that we move as God's Spirit moves us, that we are where God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do and moving in the direction that God wants us to do and be. We need to be hearing and be in tune with his Spirit, listening to him, being controlled by him because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And we can invite God's Spirit to come into us and lead and guide and direct us and be lifted up when he lifts us up and move in the direction that he moves us and be in harmony with all the other wheels and operating together in unity together, in unity with him. 
And when those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when they were lifted up from the earth, the wheels lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. God wants to give us his spirit to guide and direct us in all of his paths, in all of his ways. Verse 25, And a voice came from above the firmament that was over the heads. Above the firmament, over the heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. So God riding on the wheels. God's throne upon the wheels. And as was mentioned in that first video that God's throne moved from Jerusalem and then was in Babylon. It was with the people. And God's throne wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. And God wants us to be with him and in harmony with him. Verse 25, on the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. God has an appearance. And Ezekiel was able to see it for as much as he was able to see. It was an appearance like a man. That's amazing. Of all the creatures in all the universe, God creates us in his image. That's how he created Adam and Eve anyway. And that's how he wants to recreate us. Because today we all go our own way. We all do our own thing. We're all born in rebellion against him. But God came as a man and came to this earth. He came to us to become one of us and to become one with us. To be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. To know what it's like to be tempted in all ways, just like you are and I am. And yet also to know what it's like to have victory over it to stay in tune with God and to resist temptation and to gain the victory over it. Because of his great love for us, he was sacrificed for us. And we receive forgiveness of sins and more than just forgiveness of sins, we receive cleansing of that carnal nature and deliverance from that carnal nature. And that's when then he can put his spirit into us and move and make us and transform us and change us and recreate us into his image with that new heart like Ezekiel will talk about later on in later chapters so that we then move in harmony with him and Yeshua's prayer can be answered that we are one with him as he and the Father are one and that we would be one with one another as all of heaven is in harmony in unity together. With God's throne above us, not us raising ourselves up above God's throne, not our will, but his will being done. And also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with the brightness all around it. Similar to the Visions we see in Revelation of God's glory and God's goodness. And so Yeshua, after his death, he's raised up again to sit again upon the throne. 
Like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of this brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And if God can show that to Ezekiel in the midst of being a captive in Babylon, surrounded with the paganism of Babylon, in the midst, in the timing of Jerusalem's rebellion, the sins of Israel, and yet God's Spirit is with him, and God is able to show him his throne and bring him into the courts of heaven to see what's taking place there, that even in the midst of our struggles, living in this world, in this day, and in this age, surrounded with the confusion in the world around us, and the sins not only of the world, but the sins within the religious communities of this world as well. In the midst of it all. No matter what disappointments we've had, no matter where we've been dragged and taken against our will and done to, and the problems that we've had and the separations we've experienced, God's presence can be with us. And he can hold, hold us and strengthen us and see us through. And he can draw us into his presence. And while we can only see through a glass, like a glass darkly now, and see him, we can still see him. And we can still be filled with his spirit. And let him move us and make us after his will and into his likeness. And so as we pray tonight, before we'll pray and then we'll sing a wheel within a wheel. Yes, sir. Um, God's been moving upon your heart and mind. Maybe there's something in your life that's not in harmony together. Maybe you're going in a direction that you know is not where God's moving you. You're going in a direction that you know is not right. You're in a direction going in a direction that's not heaven bound. Maybe just one area of your life is out of kilter and the wheel is not, you know, wheel is now grinding and not just going harmony and smoothly together. One wheel is hitting another. The flesh is working against the spirit. Maybe just one area of your life, maybe just one aspect. Maybe you've been in harmony and been moving with the Lord, but something's happened, something's come about and you're feeling pulled in another direction. You want to surrender that to God and give that over to Him. Let you bring Him and let Him bring you in harmony with His will, with His Spirit, with His truth, with His power, with His righteousness. Maybe there's some disunity in your life. Maybe in your home, maybe with your spouse, or maybe with your parents, or maybe with your children or your siblings. Maybe there's some disunity there. You want to surrender that. And do as much in your part as possible to bring reconciliation and harmony and unity. Maybe in the family of God. Maybe in your work circumstances or in your school situation. Maybe somewhere there's not a working together, but a clashing going on. Maybe it's caused bitterness in your heart or anger or resentment or hurt feelings or disappointment or 
sorrow. You want to lay that all at God's feet. And let him move. And let God's throne rise above and bring you up above the situation. Let God rise you up to seat you at his right hand. To lift you up into heavenly places with him. And let the troubles of this world melt away at his feet. So if that applies to you in a moment when we pray, surrender that to him and ask God to move upon your heart and upon the heart of wherever the conflict is. Thirdly, if you've been walking with the Lord at some time in your life and had visions of him and have seen him and we're growing closer to him, but for some reason or another, it's become foggier and and God's plan and God's purpose and God's face has become dimmer in your life. There's been some backsliding or something taking place that just is not the first love experience anymore. The moment we pray, let God remove that, let God give you a zeal for him again, let God give you a vision of him again, that you be lifted up and see his throne, see his face, see his grace, see his mercy, see his forgiveness, see his love, see his compassion, and be drawn back to him and in unity with him. If any of those areas apply to him. And then we sing when we sing this song, again, it has nothing to do with the chapter, but it could be some good application for us. Whoever the writer of it was, a wheel within a wheel. Uh, again, many people sing it, but a few different choruses. One of them is... Um, Some people like to come to services to sing and shout. But after six months, they go out. (laughs) Or something like that, right? So you've had experience with the Lord, but it hasn't been lasting. You want an experience that's lasting, that's continual, that endures to the end. Not an up and down experience with the Lord, but a consistent walk with Him. Another verse in there is... uh, let me tell you what a hypocrite do. He talk about me, he talk about you. If some hypocrite's been talking about you and that's been bothering you, give it over to the Lord because it really doesn't matter what anyone else says. It only matters what God thinks. Concentrate on that. Hear God's voice saying, you are my beloved child in whom he is well pleased. And also, if we've played the part of a hypocrite, if we've been talking about others, then let us confess that and receive God's forgiveness and receive God's cleansing. Make it right with God and make it right with whoever you've been hurting. And let the record be clean before God. So if any of those areas apply to you or maybe something else God's been moving upon your heart and mind, now's a good time to just commune with him. So let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you for your goodness to us. We're thankful in the midst of storms and in the midst of troubles and in the midst of problems, you have not forsaken us and you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. There is forgiveness and there's redemption and there's hope in the midst of it all. And to work in our lives in whatever area you're working, some of the ones we mentioned or, or maybe something else, Fulfill your will and your purpose in our lives. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.